Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, this is the book of Revelation, session 29, The Leadership of the Lamb. And uh, this is uh, hopefully going to be a session that helps shift our perspective a little bit. Um, I think that uh, we probably are coming in tonight, most of us, are probably coming in tonight with a bit of a default thought process about the way that we think about Jesus' leadership, the way that we uh, kind of interpret who he is and how he leads. And uh, hopefully by uh, the end of tonight, we're going to have at least a little bit of a different perspective that I think will be um, hopefully more biblical and will uh, help inform the way that we think about Jesus, the way we see the end times through the lens of Jesus as the Lamb. So, uh, to start off with here in uh, our notes, the use of the word lamb in Scripture. So, depending on your translation, uh, you'll find probably 191 uh, references to a lamb or the lamb uh, in the Scripture. So, the word lamb in the Scripture, that's, that's a bunch. 191 is a lot of times for a word to, to show up. And uh, the, the, the primary point, whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament, of the use of the word lamb, the primary point that the, that the Holy Spirit is trying to make is to get us to view the need of a sacrificial lamb, specifically Jesus, to see Jesus as a lamb. Now, we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, and He is. We talk about Him as uh, the King of Kings. We talk about Him as a lot of different titles, but I don't know that we spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about what it means that he is a lamb related to his leadership. We know what it means that he's a lamb, that he died on the cross. But what does it mean that he's a lamb and he's a leader? He's a lambly leader. What does that even mean? Well, what we're going to do here in uh, this session is hopefully give us a little bit of uh, insight into that. And um, my hope really is that you take this idea that we're going to look at tonight and you go dive into these same verses and ask the Holy Spirit to give you additional revelation. As, a, as is the case with most of what we do on Saturday nights, we're not going to exhaust what could be said about it. We're going to kind of introduce the idea and uh, hopefully provoke hearts to go a little bit deeper. So, uh, in the 105 times that the word lamb is used between Genesis and Deuteronomy, these are the first five books of the Bible. This is the first five where God is giving instructions about who he is, what he wants the nation of Israel to expect of him, what the covenant is that he's making uh, with the people of God, how things operate. There's 105 times, so that's over half of the usages of the lamb in Scripture are found in the first five books. And this is where God is plumb lining what does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to be one of my people? What does it mean that I am the covenantal God with you as a community of people? We got it 105 times in there because God is trying to... Um, ingrain in us early on in the scripture that the lamb, the role of the lamb is important, that, that this is a, an essential aspect of who God is and how God operates and how God wants us uh, relating to him. Now, part C should say the lamb's end time leadership. I think it just is a repeat of uh, part A, but it should say the lamb's end time leadership. So if you're making notes, go ahead and fix my mistake there. Part C the Lamb's end-time leadership is how that ought to read. Now, book of Revelation 
is a revelation of Jesus' end-time leadership strategy. It's a bunch more than that. But the book of Revelation is a, a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus' end-time strategies. What is he going to do? What's he thinking about? How does he want things to operate? What does the, the future hold for the church? All those things are found in the book of Revelation. Well, it's here that we see him referenced 34 times in the book of Revelation as the Lamb. That's more than any other uh, New Testament book. It's, it's more than, I mean, most places in the Word to find that many references in so few chapters, in so few verses. 34 times Jesus is referred to as the Lamb in the book of Revelation. This means, part of what this means, a significant part of what we're supposed to interpret this to mean, is that he is going to lead his church in the end times primarily as a lamb. Now, to make that point all the stronger, we often think about Jesus as the lion. We love to write songs about Jesus as the lion. Do you know in the New Testament he's only referenced as a lion one time? And it's in the book of Revelation, right before he's referenced 34 times as a lamb. So one time as a lion, 34 times as a lamb in the book of Revelation. And there's only two other times in the whole Bible that he's referenced as a lion. And they're the prophecies of which the book of Revelation is relating back to uh, when it mentions it the one time in Revelation. I want to say that again. Jesus, the, the revelation of Jesus in the end times, in the book of Revelation, he is called a lion once. And he's called a lamb 34 times. Now, this is an interesting thought process if that's a new idea to you. Because normally we would think of it was the exact opposite. We would go really light on the lamb factor, and we'd go really heavy on the lion factor. We'd think, he's a roaring lion, he's coming, he's, he's going to you know, be roaring. And all of that is true. But it's interesting that the primary revelation, whether we're talking lion or lamb here, and one of the primary revelations throughout the whole book of Revelation of who Jesus is, of his personhood, of what he's like, he's called the Lamb over and over and over. I think we've missed that. I don't think that we've thought that way about who he is. And it's, it's an important detail that heaven is trying to put an exclamation point on in revealing himself over and over in the book of Revelation, the end time book, the, the battle strategy at the end of the age, the general is called General Lamb. Okay? The one who is orchestrating the end time judgments, the one who is, uh, who's got the whole end time battle strategy, he is the Lamb. That is just shocking. Now here's the one lion reference. Revelation 5.5. 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So there's your one reference to lion. Every other time he's talked about in this kind of language, it's always lamb. And so that's, we're going to look at, I mean, I, I've listed out in this uh, session all the verses um, that refer to him as a lamb. And so we'll look at most of those tonight. But uh, just to give us a little bit of a foundation, the lamb in the Gospels. So the book of Revelation didn't start the idea for us. The Gospels is, uh, are filled with this language, just not as many times in one book. I mean, that's pretty packed here in the book of Revelation. But we see here John the Baptist, who is the forerunner for Jesus. He sees Jesus and his first proclamation about Jesus. This is another one of those kind of important details. When John sees Jesus in his public ministry and he sees him coming forth, 
the first revelation that he gives about him is, behold, he says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So instead of Jesus being the King of Kings, who, who's going to come and conquer, which he is, or instead of him being, you know, the friend to sinners, which he is, John, in just this moment of, oh my goodness, look, look who it is, look who it is. He sees Jesus and he identifies him as the Lamb. Because this is one of the primary uh, uh, points of revelation that we have about Jesus in the scripture. He is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Part of the reason that John called him the lamb, the one lamb that takes away the sin, is because of all those Old Testament passages about the lambs that had to be sacrificed as a point of atonement, as a, as a point of taking the place of the the people, one lamb would be offered for a family every year. And it was to take away the sins of that family. And here we see John the Baptist saying, this man is the eternal lamb. He's the fix-it-all for all those lambs that, that we ever needed. This man is the central point. He is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So this is a, an important detail about who Jesus is. It's interesting that Jesus, you just love the way that Jesus turns things upside down on its head on us. Jesus, when he's restoring Peter, he calls you lambs. Jesus is the lamb. And then he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you more. You, uh, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus wants for us to take on the identity, the, the, the nature that Jesus has. Now, we're not going to be sacrificial lambs. That's already been figured out. John the Baptist said it. This is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So we're not going to be that lamb, but we're going to follow in his lambliness. We're going to follow in the ways of his meekness and his humility. We're going to be like him. That's what part of what we're supposed to do and be. And so Jesus identifies us this way. All right, now I'm going to skip down here to part three. John introducing us to the lamb of God in the book of Revelation. So now we're talking about John the apostle, not John the Baptist. John the apostle wrote the book of Revelation. And here we have Revelation 5, 5 through 8, and I'm going to read this passage in two chunks. I'm going to read 5 through 8, and then I'm going to read 9 through about 12. I think that's the next breakdown. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, 9 through 14. These, it's all the same passage, but I'm going to break it down into two categories or two sections, a part 1 and a part 2. We're going to call part 1 John's introduction of the Lamb. All right? So that's here. Revelation 5, 5 through 8. I'll read it and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now, you notice this whole passage is about lamb, 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 lamb. But it starts off making the identification. Hey, you know the, the lion that you've been waiting for? All these generations, you've been waiting for the lion from the tribe of David? Yeah, here he is. He's a lamb. The lion you have been waiting for is a lamb. 
And so he doesn't go on to describe any more of the lion aspect. He immediately starts going point by point. This one that you've been waiting for, the lion that you've been long awaiting, he is the lamb. Now, this lamb is the lion from the tribe of Judah that's been the long awaited uh, one. This lamb has triumphed. I don't know if you caught that. It says he has triumphed. It was verse, uh, let's see. Um, verse five, six, hard to do this on the run. Um, let's see who is worthy. One of the line. Yeah, he is trying verse, uh, verse five, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. So we see here that, that the lamb, one of the attributes of this lamb and he's, is that he's triumphant. He's, he's triumphed over everything, and he's going to win. He's going to be the victor. So part of what we can recognize is whatever else it means to be a lamb, we know that part of his leadership style, part of his leadership reality is that he's the one who's triumphed. Next, he's the slain lamb, part C. In the sacrificial system that God himself set up, lambs were slain for the atonement of each family. And without the sacrifice of these lambs, there was no forgiveness of sins. Jesus became that one lamb that would forever be the sacrifice enough to cover over the multitude of our sins because of his sinlessness. And his position of authority in heaven as the slain lamb is because he forever became the solution to the sin issue. He's a lamb on a throne. We see this lamb is ruling. He's, he's reigning. He is the lamb of God. He is God. He is on God's throne. Nobody can be on God's throne except God. So this lamb is God. We're talking about the lamb of God. The, the reality that this one is God himself. The lamb who's encircled. He's got the 24 elders encircled around him. This lamb has the, all the attention of heaven. He's the one who's encircled on the throne. He's got seven horns. Horns in scripture often represent authority. Uh, often even represent leadership or kingship over a nation. Seven is a, a number of, of fullness, and it, it just means perfect. So here we've got Jesus as a lamb with seven horns in full authority, with also seven eyes, fully able, in full uh, capacity of foresight and wisdom. This lamb is leading with perfect understanding and perfect authority. You know, it's a really good balance because if you've got somebody who's got all power and they also don't have all wisdom, you're going to have, have a whole lot of all trouble. The flip-flop is, is also the case, well, it's a different case. You've got somebody with all wisdom and no authority, they're not doing no good with it. And so it's really good to see Jesus with all authority and all wisdom, all sight, all insight, able to lead the nations. He's the one that takes the scroll. He's known by everyone in heaven. We talked a little bit about this in the last session. He's known by everyone as the one who is the, the, uh, the sole person to take that scroll. And it, I, I put here, top of page four, letter I, the lamb forever with the scroll in his hand. He's given this scroll, and when the lamb takes it, he forever has it. It's forever his. All right, so now that's just John allowing us to see this lamb. Now, we've talked about that same passage of Scripture, and we've talked about Jesus being that person. 
But I really wanted to stress the, the point that we're talking about Jesus as the lamb, the definition uh, or the, uh, the parameters of the lamb's leadership. All right, well now, the second part of this uh, portion of scripture now gives us a little bit of the, the backstory. This is the lamb's backstory. All right, this is what's been going on. We just found out who he is, what he looks like, what he's taking authority over. But now we're going to get a little bit of the backstory on the lamb to figure out what's, what's been going on with him. Why is it that he's able to take this scroll? How is, who is this person? All right, so uh, Revelation 5, 9 through 14. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. And they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the, under the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. For the the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So here we see that the reason that this Lamb was able to get the scroll is because of the backstory. Because he's the one who's come to earth. He's the one that's purchased uh, men for God. So let's look at this a little bit. He purchased mankind. This is the monumentally impacting statement of all times that is made about the lamb. This is the lamb that was solely responsible for the purchase of mankind. It is because of this. He single-handedly is responsible for buying humanity out of sin. It's because of this that he is the one who is worthy to take the scroll. The scroll is the end time plans of God. We're going to spend a session on that. The scroll is the, 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 the battle strategy of the end times. The scroll is the deed to the earth and to the end time uh, plan of God, the, the transition of the, who holds the keys to the earth. All of this comes, but it's not given to a man merely. It's not given to a lion specifically. It's given to a lamb. And this lamb was bought, has bought permission to take that scroll, to be that leader because of his meekness and sacrificial lifestyle. Because of the way that he served mankind, he has now been given, or will be given, the title deed to the earth. It's because of his meekness. The lamb, in the same moment that he took out our sin... He accomplished 10 other things, probably a million. We'll, we'll learn about those throughout eternity. I'm sure we'll be laughing about all the things that God did in that one moment because he's so able to accomplish more than one thing at once. It would be great to multitask. I pray that resurrected Brad Stroop can multitask. That will be, that will be great. That's, that's going to be great for all of me. Okay, so <clears throat> the lamb, in the process of purchasing us, he wipes out our sin, but then accomplishes so much more. In that same false swoop, he made us to be priests for God. In buying us, he made us to be priests. We, we read that verse. All of these points are straight out of this passage. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. We were bought and paid for, and we weren't just redeemed to be members of the kingdom, we were redeemed to become priests for God. Jesus was thinking of his father. 
And so Jesus, in his sacrificial death, bought and paid for us, not just to be sin-free, not just to be able to be in heaven forever. He bought us for his dad to be priests for Papa. He bought us to be a kingdom of priests for his God. That's what he did. That's <laughs> so excellent. In that same deed, not just servants as priests, but partners to reign with him. It says, priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. We will reign on the earth. Well, but reigning, that's Jesus' job. We're going to reign with Jesus on the earth. We were bought and paid for to become priests. We were bought and paid for also to become reigners, partners with Jesus on the earth. All of this occurred as a result of the leadership of the Lamb. This is a leader we can trust. This leader, every chance he gets, he serves. This leader, every chance he gets, he promotes. He, he accomplishes 10 things in one moment. We think that we got a good deal only to find out it was an incredibly epic deal. And then beyond that, even better. Every chance he gets, the leadership of the lamb is, is brilliant and humble. He is leading with such wisdom and authority. You see that? Back to the seven eyes and the seven horns. With such authority, but with such wisdom, with such meekness, with such lamb quality, with such sacrificial version of leadership, servant-hearted leadership. This is the leadership of the lamb. I want us to catch this because when Jesus comes back, he doesn't change. He's going to act like this. During the end times, he's going to act like this. Because it's not an act. It's who he is. He's the lamb. The lion once, the lamb 34 times in the book of Revelation, we're supposed to be interpreting his leadership style. We're supposed to be interpreting who he is and how he operates and how he thinks and how he leads as a lamb. The lamb is worthy of it all. They give the sevenfold forever uh, uh, ascribing to him. All glory and honor and praise worth it's possible, I'm, I'm working on it now, if, if it's not, if it doesn't become a session, I'll stick it in on, in some session just as a, a, maybe a Roman numeral, but there's a good chance that that sevenfold uh, ascribing of his worth is going to become a session, because there's so much to be said in those seven things, I'll just give you the, the snapshot, they're all components Jesus as a man is going to need when he rules and reigns for the thousand years and beyond. They're all seven aspects of what his leadership will, he'll actually need those things. And so, uh, so there's a good chance that that's going to turn into a session. And the lamb is worshipped by all. Okay, let's keep going. Now, what we just did is we just looked at chapter 5, which has got a bunch of lamb references. Lamb, 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 lamb. Okay, we looked at them all in chapter 5. Now we're going to look at the rest of the book of Revelation, and we're going to break it down into a couple of themes. The first is the lamb of redemption. All right? We see here in Revelation 13, 8, that he's the lamb of redemption. Skipping around uh, Revelation here, we're in uh, Revelation 13, we're in the description, if you don't know Revelation 13, this is the chapter, that's the description of the Antichrist. All right? So the Antichrist is like this horrible, horrible dude, okay? And the focus of his ministry is mostly 
taking from mankind. When you look at the ministry of the Antichrist and what he's going to do, he's mostly going to take. He's going to set up the, the uh, Mark of the Beast system. He's going to demand worship. He's going to demand money. He's going to demand respect. He's going to demand nations. He's a taker, okay? But in the middle of the taker chapter, we see Jesus identified right in the middle of it, Revelation 13, 8, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. This is right in the middle of the Antichrist taking. We see Jesus, the opposite, being described of him right there in the middle. It was intentional. This could have been written any way. It could have, been, it could have just said the Lamb, but it says the Lamb. You remember the one who was slain from the creation of the world, the very identification of this lamb, that before there was anything, he was a giver. Before there was anything, he was a sacrificial leader. Before anything, he was one that invested in and gave and was willing to give even the ultimate sacrifice. He's the lamb slain for all mankind. It's right there in the middle of the passage that we're looking at the, the weight. If you read Revelation 13, it's weighty. It's heavy. It's really yucky. And it's important that we don't shy away from yucky, weighty, heavy passages. That we learn to navigate those, just like we love the ooey-gooey, warmy, fuzzy ones. We, we want to love the whole Bible, not just the parts that make us feel good. And so we read Revelation 13, and it's heavy. And it's like Jesus, or John sticks it right in there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know, right in the midst of this taker, don't forget the giver. He's the real one. He's the real one in charge. He's the real leader. Salvation for mankind belongs to the Lamb. I gave you there. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. Revelation uh, 13.8. Again, now we're looking at this book that the Lamb has. It's not called the book of salvation. It's called the Lamb's book of life, which is the book of salvation. But it's called the Lamb's book. So the Lamb, you just imagine this lamb man walking around with a book and it's his book and he's so excited about it and every name in this book is a name that has said yes to his plan has said yes to the incredible gift that he's offered the lamb's book of life and so I, it's the same verse that we read a minute ago but we're coming at it from a different direction now the lamb has a book his names his precious ones i just love that he's got a book that he takes it so seriously that he's like, I'm the lamb, I came and I died. I take my assignment, my responsibility, and who I am so seriously, I write down every single person's name in the book. Everybody that gives their life to me, I write their name down in the book. Uh, all those that have received my sacrifice, I'm going to honor them back. I'm going to write them in my book. Like I, I want to make sure that I know every one of their names. And he carries it around. I just find it so interesting that we're on this, the this uh, subject of the lamb and his leadership. And it's called the Lamb's Book of Life is the salvation name written in the books of heaven book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's 144,000. You look at Revelation 14, 1 through 4, and it talks about, uh, there I looked before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000. So there's 144,000 that are with the lamb. And they follow him wherever he goes. This 144,000 are 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes. So 12 times 12 is 144,000. 
And we, we can see that from Revelation 7 because it actually breaks down 12,000 for this tribe, 12,000 for this tribe. So you can see that if you're interested, Revelation 7. But here we've got the Lamb's 144,000. They're the Lamb's 144. They belong to Him. They are His. They go where He goes. Uh, they, have their, they have His name written on their forehead, it says. It says, uh, where is that? Yeah, yeah. The name of... Uh, and his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So each one of these 144,000 have a tattoo of some sort on their forehead of the lamb. The lamb's name is written on their forehead. It's called the lamb's name. It's not the name of Jesus merely. It's not the son of God. It's not any of the other titles. It's not king of kings. It's the lamb's name is written on their forehead. They're branded by the lamb. Lambs. Owned by the lamb. This is the greatest branding, uh, you know, cattle prod ever. Lamb. Lamb. It's stuck on their forehead, all 144,000 of them. The song of the lamb. Now, this is like the greatest moment ever. And it only... The, the only moment that's ever greater than the moment we're about to read is the moment not long after it uh, in the chronology of end time events. That moment's even greater. But this moment is the greatest moment up to this point. This moment, Revelation 15, 2 through 3, let me give you a little bit of the timing here. Revelation 15 is right before the bowls of wrath have been poured out. And it's right after the seventh trumpet. Well, the seventh trumpet is when the church is raptured. We're, we're raptured at the last trumpet. The last trumpet will sound, and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the church is meeting the Lord in the air, all right? And the, the judgments, the, the major judgments of the bowls of wrath have not yet been poured out. They're about to be in the next chapter, okay? That's what's going on here. Then it says, those who had been victorious over the beast. Now, victorious over the beast means two things in this passage. One, it means you died a martyr, but you held the line on who Jesus was. That's going to be victorious over the beast. Okay? Then there's going to be another group that just got raptured that stayed faithful to Jesus until the second coming. They stayed faithful. They did not, uh, they did not bow the knee. They stayed faithful. So there's two different groups that are referred to here as those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord Almighty. Now, let me just give this to you for a second. There's a bit of mystery here, but I want to say it just in its most simplistic sense. The song of the Lamb is a song of great thanksgiving to God for His salvation. His salvation through Jesus as the Lamb on the cross. His salvation through Jesus as the Lamb who's leading the end time orchestration of all these judgments and everything. And they're praising they, you and me, are praising the Lamb, and they're singing the Lamb's song. And they're, they're, in this, they're in this end time moment where we just got raptured and we're singing the song of the Lamb. And it is the most epic moment. And it's what I'm just thinking about for, for a second. This is like one of those get real moments where it's, just, it's all kind of settling in. You've got all these people that were just raptured, and they all spoke 4,000 different languages a minute ago. But now they're together singing the song of the Lamb. Is that in their own tongue? Is that in a I don't know. I all, but one way or the other, we're all singing it together. This is the most momentous moment in history. Like you're talking about the entire end time church that's just been victorious over the beast. Singing the song of the Lamb. 
This is an epic moment in future history for the church. Only to be surpassed by the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is the coronation of Jesus as king. We just went from, we love you so much, we can't, uh, we can't uh, uh, even have the words to declare how grateful we are for you, to now, you are worthy not just to take the scroll, you're worthy to be king of the earth forever. This is actually where Jesus now becomes the king of the earth, like he was given the scroll in Revelation uh, 5, and he starts to open the, the seals in Revelation 6. Here we have in Revelation uh, 19, he's now actually walking in the fullness of that authority. He's now actually on the earth, becoming king of the earth and being coronated over the earth. And it's called the wedding supper of the lamb. It's a big feast. It's not just called the, the wedding supper of God. It's referenced that way uh, in, in one or two places. But it's called the wedding supper of the lamb. It's the lamb's day. It's the Lamb's Supper. It's the Lamb's Wedding. It's the Lamb's Bride. Revelation 21, 9 through 11, part G. The wife of the Lamb. This is a bit of a mystery we don't have time to get into. I'm going to go very quickly through the next section. I'm going to do it in about two minutes. But uh, part G here, the wife of the Lamb. This is one of the most beautiful and mysterious subjects in the New Testament, in my opinion. Because it's so mysterious, the way that God refers to the wife of Jesus or the bride of Christ, referring to the church, referring to the very fact that we're referred to as his wife in marriage. But also in Revelation 21, we see that when God refers to the bride of Christ, he's not just talking about the, the uh, relationships that he has in the church. He's talking about the physical building that he has in the New Jerusalem. He calls the New Jerusalem the Bride of Christ. He calls the New Jerusalem the Bride of Christ, and he calls you and I the Bride of Christ. There's, mis there's mystery all over this thing. The two most beautiful things he can think of, the city that he designed and the bride that he has won for his son, they're both called the Bride of Christ, and there's, again, there's mystery to it. But it's interesting, I give you here, uh, Revelation 21, verse 9 Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Not just the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. I just, I'd love for that one to make it into some of the songs. You know, the wife of the Lamb. That's because that's another title for the bride of Christ or for the church. The wife of the Lamb. And that's one of the points of Revelation. Over and over we see it. All right, well, what we're going to do is we're going to end quickly with the Lamb of war and judgment. Oh my gosh. Yikes. Well, this is also revelation. He's not just everything we've read thus far. He's the lamb who opens the seals. Revelation 6, 1 through 7. I gave it to you there. Uh, bottom of page 7. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then the second, the third, the fourth, fifth. The lamb is the one opening the seals. not the lion. It's not an angel. It's not the, the Antichrist. It's not Satan. It's Jesus, the lamb. The lamb in meekness. The lamb in perfect wisdom. The lamb who every time he acts, you can count on him doing it for your good. The lamb who acts out of selflessness. The, the, the lamb who's always looking for the good of his church and of his people. He's the one that opens the seals. It's the lamb opening the seals. Verse uh, 6, 15 through 17, the wrath of the Lamb. Look at this. 
Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is an interesting quote because these are lost men during the Great Tribulation who are crying out, save us from, and they don't just say God, they say the Lamb. Lost men having a revelation of the Lamb's leadership over them. Lost men having a revelation and saying, not just does he have leadership, he's wrathing us right now. Save us from the wrath of the Lamb. And they, they're operating with theological clarity. They are understanding that what's happening is the wrath, not just of God, the wrath of the Lamb that was sacrificed. The Lamb that operates in meekness. Save us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what they, that's what they cry. Victory comes by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12, 11, they triumph over him, over Satan, over the Antichrist, by the blood of the Lamb. There's a, there's a measure of the revelation of what Jesus did in laying down his life as the Lamb that the end-time martyrs are going to be able to, uh, to uh, uh, not sympathize, but it, take in. They're going to be able to, 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 to connect the dots. They're going to have that same interconnectivity to the revelation of Jesus as the Lamb. And it says they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. They're going to have the, the cleansing blood of Jesus on them. But I think it's more than that. I think they're going to be seeing themselves in the storyline and going, our sacrifice will be meaningful. Our sacrifice will be like that of the Lamb that we follow. We're going to be like him. And it says that they overcame the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb then meets the, leads the multitudes out of the Great Tribulation. I'll let you read that one later. Part E, the uh, forever, this is another one of those theological points that's just so intense. The Lamb, the good guy, the kind Lamb, it says that the, the wicked are going to be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb forever. Now, th now this is by choice. I mean, Jesus gets a choice in all this. Jesus, as the lamb, says, those that have turned against me, who did not follow my ways, who waged war against me, I want to see to it that they are tormented forever, but more than that, I want view of them in my presence, tormented in my presence. That is such an intense thought process about the lamb and his leadership. It's such a picture of the, the no shying back, where Jesus is like, you thought it was absurd. You thought it was so crazy that I would die on a cross as God, as fully God, fully man. You thought it was crazy that I would go that far. I'm telling you, I am not ashamed at all of what that means if you didn't receive that. I'm not ashamed at all of what the consequences are if you do not receive the sacrifice that I gave as the lamb. In fact, all of those who don't receive it will be tormented in my presence eternally. So intense. And they're going to declare war against the Lamb. It doesn't say declare war against the Son of God. That would be true. Declare war against the King of Kings. True too. The, the end time armies are going to declare war against the Lamb. They're going to know what they're doing. They're going to declare war against Him. Okay, well let's break into groups. How many groups we got tonight? Four groups. Six per group. All right, Luke. All right, just a few more seconds. Wrap up your question for each group.
All right, let's go ahead and transition. How are we doing back there, Andy? Need a minute? Are we good? Okay. Um, all right, so then we'll go ahead and uh, start with questions. Uh, Luke, we'll go ahead and start with yours, and uh, I'll repeat the questions just for those who are watching online that won't be able to hear the question. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Uh, the question, more or less, is tormented in the presence of the lamb. Huh? Yeah. All right, so, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, good news is I overheard murmuring, so I already opened my Bible to the passage I was planning <laughs> to use to answer this question. Um, so, there's a, uh, there is... Let me, let me take a step back. Um, mankind is so diverse. The, the, the way that God knit together humans with DNA and personality, and there's so many layers. And when you look at creation and you see one type of tree could have gotten the job done, but God made a billion types of trees. He's so multifaceted, so multilayered, so multi so carefully thought through every single detail. Eternity is meticulously thought through. And the details of eternity are minutia upon minutia to create this grand storyline. Now, the reason I'm saying all this and building it up, there are so many aspects of eternity that we're given whispers of in our Bibles. Whispers. We don't know the fullness, but the whispers are there. Now, I say some of the whispers are there. There's a billion things he hadn't told us anything about. One of the whispers of how hell works in eternity is found in Isaiah chapter 34. And so I want to read to you Isaiah 34 about hell, and I want to connect it to, and this is not an isolated passage. There's about four passages that describe this exact reality but no passage describes it with geography as clearly as Isaiah chapter 34, all right? So Isaiah chapter 34, this is describing after the Lord's wrath has come, after the day of the Lord, okay? All right, then it says, uh, I'm in verse 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams. Now, Edom is currently the, the nation of Jordan, all right, in, in that territory. So Edom was a nation in this hour. It says, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. And then there's more descriptions. Huh? What is this? This either means absolutely nothing or it's hell. This either means, oh, you know, God's like mad at Edom. He's going to be like, bad Edom, you're bad. And it means nothing. Or the description that we're being given, which are... The, the actual facets of hell are being described 
in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 34 as where the point of the abyss, the point of the burning lake of fire will have physical uh, viewing point on the material earth during the millennium as a, as a, uh, as a mile marker, as a um, uh, memorial forever of all of the wickedness of human history, okay? What's going to happen is Jesus is actually from his throne in Jerusalem, which is going to be raised up, and it's going to be the highest point in the land. It says the others are going to be laid low, the high, but that mountain's going to be raised up higher. Jesus from Jerusalem is going to be able to see Edom, which is just a good ways to the, to the east. He's going to be able to see into Edom, and then we've got this passage in Revelation where in the presence of the Lamb, they're actually, he's actually going to be able to witness those that are burning in the lake of fire forever. He's going to be able to witness it from Jerusalem. Now, I just threw out, that's a massive teaching to unpack with four or five main passages of which I gave you one. But in short answer, uh, part of the nuance of eternity is we all know hell exists forever. The lake of fire exists forever. But the lake of fire doesn't exist forever only for the wicked. It exists for the wicked and for everybody else to be able to see it and go bad. That's, that's a, a forever memory, a forever uh, visual representation of evil, of wickedness, of what happens when we don't follow God. And again, you just read the passage in Isaiah 34, and it doesn't just say what it is, it says where it is. It says God is going to so judge Edom forever, both for her past sins and for her future ones. The nation of Jordan is a not a particularly fond nation of Israel at the moment. And so, um, anyway, so there's a, a short version of, of the answer. I would encourage you, uh, for any of you guys who have study Bibles, go look at the passage in Isaiah, uh, yeah, Isaiah 34, starting in verse 8 and following, and see where the cross-references are. Go look up other places where it's talking about burning sulfur in the Scripture, blazing pitch, um, these types of uh, language points, and you see also that it's uh, that the same uh, the same reality is described uh, in the Book of Revelation, chapter eighteen, I believe, related to the harlot Babylon. And so, there's another little passage for you. But short version: Jesus, from his throne, will actually be able to see the lake of fire. So, next question. Yeah. So if there's one reference to the lion, and it's kind of the introductory uh, reference, and then all the other references to this lion are referring to him as a lamb, why is he called the lion in that first one? I think the most, uh, uh, one of the most important reasons for that is to connect the dots of what the Messiah figure was always uh, imagined to be. And so the picture of this is the lion of the tribe of Judah, which goes all the way back to uh, the, uh, the, the patriarchs and what was promised uh, when uh, Jacob laid hands on, uh, on his sons and 
uh, and he, he pronounces blessings over each of them and talks about what they're going to be. And he, he, decide, he defines Judah and his future role as a ruler, as like a lion. And it's from that point forward then that Israel is, is believing there is coming a promised savior figure. And he is going to be the lion, and he's going to furthermore be the lion from the, the tribe of Judah. And then uh, uh, in, in, in Revelation uh, chapter 5, John connects the dots. It's not just that he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's also the root that is anticipated to come up from David. So he's tying both of these messianic promises, and he's saying, Hey, all Israel, and anybody else who's been paying attention, you've been waiting for the Messiah, right? Yes. You've been waiting for the lion from the tribe of Judah? Yes. You've been waiting for the, the root of David? You've been waiting for the messianic king to come from David's line? Yes. There he is. And he points, and everybody's expecting that at the other end of the finger where John's pointing, there's going to be a lion. And instead, it's a lamb. Who is the lion? But the primary face he's wearing is not the lion face. The primary face that he's wearing, he is that lion. It, look, there he is. There is the lion you're waiting for. But this lion is a lamb, and that's the curveball. This lion is a lamb, and he operates like a lamb. He thinks like a lamb. He's also, and then, and then anybody who's paying attention who you know, wasn't you know, deeply uh, uh, acquainted with all of the look, this is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world language from the New Testament. They're all now in this connection point. The lion is the lamb. They're all able to go, oh, the lamb. He's also the one we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for the sacrificial lamb that was going to take away the sins for, for like the big L lamb because we had all the lowercase lambs, L lambs that had to be sacrificed for each family. This guy is everything. This guy is all in all. This guy is the lion. This guy is the lamb. And so then all the rest of the descriptions of him are referring to him as a lamb, that it's not like the lamb is a different person than the lion. The lamb is different attributes of the same person, but it is the primary revelation of the face that he's going to be wearing at his return. Not the only. He's coming as a bridegroom. He's coming as a king. He's coming as a judge. He's coming as the son. He's coming as everything. But in the book of Revelation, the, the main focus point is he's repeatedly called the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. So good question. Um, back there, question? So So let me, let me restate it and then correct me if you need clarification or whatever. So uh, Jesus is referred to in uh, Revelation 13.8 as the lamb slain uh, from the creation. Let me read it exactly. Uh, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So, so the, this is now making the case that Jesus always and forever backwards in the other direction. Not forwards, but in backwards in reverse, he always was that lamb slain and to be slain. So then, how does the sacrificial system play into this where a lamb was required 
uh, for each family every year uh, for their sins to be covered? More or less the same question. Good. So uh, the, the short version of this is it was always, well, let me just take a sidestep. I love the fact that God is into new experiences. Okay, God had never been man before. He never done that. That was new. <laughs> but it was always the plan. <laughs> I just wonder how many more new things for God are in the future that are the plan that he just hasn't done yet. I mean, the fact that God would do something new, like become a man, is just unthinkable. Okay, so, uh, but always the plan was that, that God would, would become uh, a man and become the lamb and that that sacrifice would then take away the sin of the world, but it hadn't happened yet. It was the future plan, but it hadn't happened yet. And so just like so many of the prophecies that you have over your life, where the Lord says certain things about you, things that he's going to do, you live like those things are true, but you also need to obey and follow the Lord's voice today. You need to follow the instruction of the leadership of the Lord today, not just wait for that future promise to happen, that future thing to become reality. Yes, it's true. Yes, it will happen. But day to day, we follow the Lord. So the entirety of the Old Testament is God setting the stage and God giving the people of God very real way for them to be able to participate in the eternal covenant of the, of the lamb slain from the future creation. So today, what you need to do to be able to participate in that, that covenant, which is going to have a future uh, start date where, where the revelation is made, where Jesus comes and actually dies on the cross. In order to be able to participate in that, I need you now to operate in the shadow. And the way that that works is I need for all of you to take me seriously and you need to sacrifice a lamb every year for your family. And if you'll do that, you'll receive the covenantal blessings that all of those that are going to receive uh, in the future when the lamb slain from the creation of, of the world, or from all creation, actually does enter into humanity, becomes uh, a, a man, becomes uh, perfectly uh, you know, sinless, dies on the cross, and then we have the past tense slain lamb, not just the future promise, but the reality. So all of those throughout history um, have been operating in the shadow of that which would be. And it's actually, it's, it's actually pretty incredible that God has the ability to, with one covenant, with one purpose, he's able to operate in different periods of time uh, according to that purpose uh, in time. So you're, you're going to look at, in, in the millennium, the same sacrificial lamb who was slain before, you know, the foundations of the earth, during the millennium, people are actually going to be looking back on the slain lamb, kind of like during the Old Testament, people were looking forward to the slain lamb. Because in the millennium, Jesus is going to be there. There's, there's no longer going to be any mystery of, is Jesus God? Is Jesus the lamb? Is Jesus salvation? Is Jesus good? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? The veil is gone. He's right there. And you're going to have people born in the millennium that have never known a day in their life without Jesus being God and lamb and man and ruler and king on earth. And so they're going to be looking back on the slain lamb. They're going to be like, tell us the story again. He died on a cross. What, what happened? I mean, tell us what it was like to get saved in that environment like when the devil wasn't locked up. Like, what was that like? That must have been tough. And they're going to be looking back in some of the same way, in a, in a kind of the opposite way, as those in the Old Testament were looking forward. Great question. So we already answered yours because it was the same. Okay. All right. Well, worship leader, come on up. And 
Good one, guys. Good questions. Good conversation. Uh, I know this one is, uh, I think it was probably good for the conversation, but I also think it probably brought up a lot of questions and caused your minds to kind of have to think a little bit. I want to encourage you, whatever, whatever points of the conversation were left unresolved in your heart, whether it was something we talked about or something you read or a verse or, or a question you had with Jesus, don't just let that go. Talk to the Lord about that. Spend some time this week dialoguing with the Lord about those things. We're doing this study not just so we can say, there, we got revelation. We're doing this study so we can know Jesus and know the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, take these moments to actually go deeper and to know Him. This concludes this teaching from The Prayer Room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.